Welcome to everyone. Welcome to a distinguished panelist, uh, Rabbi Penner, as well. Uh, and uh, welcome to all of you. Um, we're waiting for Rabbi Tarragon, who is uh, on the way over. He'll be here shortly. So he'll catch us in, in midstream, I believe. And uh, just by way of introduction, um, titled this uh, panel, Is the World Too Much With Us? The Dvar Hashem of the Digital Age. And I uh, want to focus a little bit uh, this afternoon on some of the challenges and the opportunities that the digital age presents to us as Jews committed to a life of Torah and mitzvahs. The title, for those who are more literarily inclined, is a nod to Moreno Verabeno, the paraphrase of a poem, a sonnet, by Wordsworth, that he wrote at the turn of the 19th century, entitled, The World is Too Much With Us. In that poem, which was about the Industrial Revolution, expressed his lament that the Industrial Revolution itself had distanced people from nature and from each other and from themselves. We're now well into the digital information revolution, whatever the name of it might be. It's still up for grabs. But the question in our context, of course, is not about nature per se, but about what could be broadly referred to as the Olam HaTorah, the conveyance of the Dvar Hashem, and our impact, the impact of this on our world as Jews who are questing for a relationship with the Rivona Sha'olam. I saw Yonatan Shai Friedman uh, was helping coordinate today. He gave me an express rishus to mention a story that he uh, relayed on the Shabbat uh, Haaretzion listserv, which is how, of course, many of us who are bogrim uh, of the yeshiva continue to communicate and to stay in touch about common issues of concern. That story was a story that he himself heard from Rav Yair Khan from around uh, 2002. And the story was that Rav Yair Khan paid a shiva call to home of Rav Meir Schlesinger, the Rosh Shiva Shalavim. Rav Schlesinger told him at the shiva that Machon Somet was working on a Shabbos telephone. And that some Rabbanim had heard about this telephone, and their immediate reaction was, it's usser, it's a slippery slope, it would be the end of Shabbos, that such a phone could exist. Rav Schlesinger said that he recounted that when Rav Lichtenstein was consulted about the same issue, his initial reaction was, you mean I could speak to the Rav on Shabbos and share the Ivrei Torah with him? <laughs> so Schlesinger was lamenting the obvious distinction between the two approaches, positive or negative, as polarities. He said it could be true of any technology. It could be used properly to help the world, to spread Torah, etc., to market Torah, or, God forbid, for cross-purposes, at working at uh, cross-purposes with that. So just uh, in terms of, that's in terms of framing some of the discussion. We're honored today to uh, have among our panelists um, people with uh, differing perspectives, differing levels of experience, uh, living through, such as we all are, this uh, period of time. And with certain uh, ex extremely uh, radical changes on one level, another level, continuity with everything that came before, just new vessels, new modalities of communication, and uh, possibly, potentially, our butts of Torah. So let me open just uh, by uh, once again welcoming the panelists. My lengthy introduction, notwithstanding, Ruth Tarragon is still on the way over, so we'll, we'll start with our panelists who are here. Um, and uh, just to pose the, uh, the question, I mean, um, what are some of the advantages, uh, obvious advantages aside, but beyond the technical advantages, are there other advantages to uh, these new technologies in terms of Talmud Torah that you've seen in your teaching and your interaction with Talmudim uh, over, the, uh, over this period of time, over the last decades? Do you see any shift? Let's start. Okay. 
<laughs> Firstly, uh, <coughs> it's a pleasure to be here. I thank Father Engel for um, coordinating, certainly with my part. What's um, that? Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get a little louder. I don't think we need the microphone, but um, the question of uh, obviously the um, integrating new technology into uh, the ancient and um, you know, uh, raison d'etre of our lives, which is Limud uh, Torah, Talmud Torah, Kineged Kulam, is obviously um, a question that doesn't have a simple answer, uh, like most questions do not. Um, the truth is that new technologies um, have always been a part of the landscape of um, any ancient um, discipline, and that's true for Talmud Torah as well. Obviously, um, going way back, the ideal of Dvar B'Shabasav Yatar Rashoy L'Omran B'Alpeh, Yatar Rashoy L'Omran B'Ksav, the idea that Torah Shabbasav and Torah Shabbalpeh constitute you know, distinct disciplines that are intended to accomplish um, different but um, interlocking goals uh, is something which, um, at a point in our history, um, was... Uh, you know, because of Ace Lassel's Hashem favorite Torah Secha, was deemed to be counterproductive, and um, that, you know, created uh, a revolution in its own right, the idea of writing uh, of Torah Shabbat. Steps at that time needed to be taken in order to um, ensure that not with that, the, that this change, let's say, in policy, that uh, uh, adopting uh, new techniques in Libra Torah, adapting in some respects um, a, an old uh, principle uh, would be constructive and would not undermine the original intent behind that, that division. And um, again, the laws of Form Shabbat Peya Torah Shalom its corollary, um, found uh, Chazal found different ways to continue to express and to ensure that Torah Shabbat would accomplish its particular goal, its distinctive goal, and Torah Shabbat would accomplish um, its. And um, again, I'm not going to survey the whole history, although it would be um, helpful if we had more time. But obviously, when uh, manuscripts and uh, especially when printing came about, um, that constituted a major revolution. And um, even you know, substantive halachic questions like Talmud al Yora, you know, Bifnei Rabo, um, things of that sort. Um, the idea of the dependence. Um, of uh, students, of disciples from their, from their mentors, the idea that there could be, um, you know, written, you know, rabbeim, and that somehow you could, you know, cross through history, you know, it could be a Talmud of, um, you know, of Rav Ashi and Ravina, and of the Ramban and the Rambam, um, that had its impact as well, as I say, even on those uh, particular questions. And once again, we find that uh, the same kind of care the same kind of dialectic um, resulted. In other words, that on the one hand, the benefits um, of that revolution of printing, which was really a revolution, uh, access to books, access to things that had not been accessible for many generations, uh, which obviously uh, generated a level of independence, that that would be constructive, that the benefits of that would be um, gleaned. And at the same time, uh, there was still a recognition that the old and classical methods, that the concept of Mesora, that Ish Mipi Ish, the Moshe Rabbeinu, the idea of cultivating a Rebbe 
Um, and everything that goes along with that is a sinekonon for success in Talmud Torah, um, that that needed to continue as well. And if we analyze again how um, these changes were integrated into the halachic system and into Limanat Torah, I said it's very instructive. Um, the balance that emerges is something that is very impressive. So certainly um, in the time of um, new technologies, uh, originally radio and then television and then obviously the internet, um, and the expansion of the internet, you know, the I guess what we're calling the digital age, um, is not really different in that respect. Um, it too provides the benefits, which is of access to knowledge. Certainly, um, at a couple of uh, quick uh, strokes of the key, um, one can um, you know uh, find out a lot. Uh, mostly, that is beneficial, uh, with the emphasis on the on the mostly. It um, certainly in terms of amaratsis, in terms of providing guidance as a beginning for, for research uh, to ensure that a person's study, um, depending on whether we're talking about Psach Halacha or Libanat Torah, but either way, uh, that it is more exhaustive, that it is more representative. Um, all of those things obviously can be very stimulating. Uh, they can um, um, engender a positive independence, um, and it has. Uh, at the same time, um, again, with the same kind of caveats, um, Talmud Torah requires mentoring. It requires immersion. Um, there's no substitute for um, day in and day out uh, engagement with Dvar Hashem and with Havayis Tavayi Rava. person needs to immerse himself, I think, page after page after page in the, uh, in the Gemara and in the Rambam and in the Shofar Aruch and in the Parshanim. Uh, and in the um, you know Jewish philosophers, um, there's no substitute for that. So the um, illusion uh, that one could substitute Bikias, let's say, for um, you know computer access, um, is something which uh, creates its own uh, dangers and limitations. And I think that is something I don't want to monopolize the time that we really need to uh, be aware of and on guard against. And um, again. You mentioned uh, Rav Lichtenstein Zatzal at the outset, um, a model for us all, you know, in terms of somebody who, you know, we used to joke, you know, the Talmudo Biyado, who uh, walked around, you know, with Shas and, and Rambam and many other things, you know, in his head. Um, not because, you know, he had a good memory alone and was, you know, therefore able to access his own personal database, but because after day after day of painstaking, uh, analysis and you know adding every day to the you know to the to the conceptual uh, analysis of the day before uh, he became somebody as all Chachmei Mesorah are who is more than the sum of his parts. I like very much the analogy of a walking Sefer Torah, and a walking Sefer Torah is not something that can ever be substituted for by uh, Bikias access of a computer. So it's very critical that we um, be aware of that and that we train our tamidim, you know, what are the constructive benefits of using this and what are the pitfalls and limitations uh, or where um, this might be counterproductive in terms of developing a tamid hakanim. I think there are also, but I'm not going to mention it now because I want to give time, um, some very important cultural and educational issues, educational especially in the earlier years, uh, elementary and high school. Um, I think that there's a lot to talk about in terms of whether computer access and databases have been beneficial or more of a crutch and counterproductive. Um, I think also in terms of um, religious sensibility, uh, the role of um, the internet culturally 
is something which um, needs to be examined very carefully. To be Thank you. Thank you for having me on the panel with my Rebbe. Actually, both my Rebbe. I had this course to learn from Rebbe Tarragon in Shana Aleph. He gave the Chaburas a night seder. So this is quite a uh, quite an opportunity for me. Welcome, everyone. Um, rather than give a perspective on uh, the the uh, the particulars, I want to try to frame the discussion. It's a gush event, after all. We don't want to talk about too many specifics as much as understanding. I think I want to draw two distinctions. One um, with the introduction uh, of uh, Rabbi Engel, and the second with a comment mentioned by Rav Rosenzweig. Um, and I think they're both important um, distinctions. You can always have a discussion as to whether or not technology is a good thing or a bad thing, and whether the advent of the Internet is overall uh, some positive or negative. But I think that it that clouds the discussion sometimes, as to whether or not when we're using it for the positive, is it a good thing or is it a bad thing? And I assume that that's what we'll discuss here, but those are really two different discussions. Um, using the Internet for a Torah perspective, using it for a Bittel Torah or worse perspective, but we're talking within the Torah perspective, <clears throat> is it helpful? And what are the positives and the negatives within that perspective? The second thing is that whereas, of course, um, the advent of Torah... The writing down of Torah Shabbat Alpeh represented, as Sir Rosenzweig said, a, a, a sea change in the way that we approached Torah. It was, uh, it was brought about by an internal need. There was, there was a challenge within the way that we were studying Torah or the potential to continue to study Torah. And the decision to go with, to write down Torah Shabbat Alpeh was in response to that need. Here we have something that's really external. We have something that provides a tremendous opportunity. Now, of course, perhaps one could argue there are always better ways to study Torah. But, but it would be difficult to claim that the Torah world was in crisis, that the Torah was, that it was an ace lasos la Hashem. We needed to turn to a digital approach. And that has to make us a lot more cautious. Make us a lot more cautious because this is the, the the digital advances in terms of our learning are an opportunity, but not necessarily a necessity, and that perhaps causes a different, more sober look at those opportunities uh, in relation to you know what the alternatives are. Um, I think it's also important to recognize that um, one of the challenges that we always have is that we're always behind the times. The question for us is not so much should we include more of the digital technology, but do we now have to remove it? Right? Of course, as a teacher, as an educator, one might be sitting at a, at a meeting and deciding, and, and perhaps it's something as the yeshiva that all the yeshivas need to do, yeshiva gadola. Uh, to what extent should we begin to go the high school route and integrate more technology into the classroom? But the reality is much of this shift has already occurred, and now we're at a point where we have to ask ourselves, do we want to take things out of the classroom? One of the things we discussed last year a lot in YU was, are laptops the best way to take notes in a shear? And what are the positives and the negatives of that? And we know there are many, many studies that say that laptops are very bad for, for thought and for even retention, that writing notes 
has a much higher level of retention than simply typing. It's the way the Ribbona Shalom seem to connect our brains and our hands in writing. So that's one of the things that we have to ask ourselves is, what's already there? Did we want it? And do we want, and I'll make this the last comment, do we want all of it? One of the questions that we often have when facing something that's coming from the modern world, whether it's a cultural issue or a technological issue, is do we want it or do we not want it? Does it have a place in Torah? Does it not have a place in Torah? And very often the answer is going to have to be, we're going to have to let it in. But the question we need to ask ourselves is, do we want it in exactly the way that it's used or presented in the secular world? Or do we need to kind of take a step back and say, these opportunities are here, but we want some of it, but we don't want all of it. Part of that's the challenge of modern orthodoxy. Once, once we're saying, yes, it's okay to bring it into our world, how do we bring it into our world in a way that analyzes it, that doesn't accept it at face value, that doesn't say, we need to do it exactly the way it's done, making it a yes or no question, but how do we try to glean the pieces that are valuable and restrict, or unfortunately in our case, remove, because it's already there, it's already in, it's already become part of our culture, the pieces that we've decided through our chachamim and through the leaders of our generation might not be worth taking in. Thank you both. If I could um, just pick up on, just as a follow-up question. Um, So I'm a congregational rabbi. And um, I try to also record shiurim, and uh, in addition to giving shiurim in person, so there's other modalities of communication. I noticed that um, over time, in my relatively speaking brief career, it seems like people's attention span has gotten shorter and shorter. I don't know if anyone else feels this. This was confirmed for me in 2010. I read a book by Nicholas Carr called The Shallows that was making the rounds in 2010. And he wrote about how in his uh, earlier years he could read research papers, no problem. And as the years went on, even in trying to write a book called The Shallows about how the internet age was impacting, see from the nods, many people have read this book, right, it was impacting the way he thought, his actual way of thinking. He felt he didn't have what we would call in our parlance is this flesh. He just couldn't sit and read. He couldn't, he just couldn't spend the time. And lo and behold, uh, when we were uh, just uh, in, in a little bit of conversation earlier, right, Connor, you mentioned, you know, the, the, analytics of the, the analytics of the YU Torah audience indicate that there's a tremendous popularity with Shiurim on YU Torah, the tremendous resource, as is, I should mention, the VBM and the KMTT, Kimitzion Teitzei Torah, both Mishivat Haaretzion, are targeting exactly on time for this for this question, so we're getting into the VBM now. <laughs> and there's a tremendous popularity, welcome, Targeting. Tremendous popularity with 5-minute Shiurim, 10-minute Shiurim, 20-minute Shiurim, any of us you know, I hear from Balbati, awesome, Rabbi, 10-minute halacha. Why don't you give a 10-minute halacha? They do, but two Yeah, it's too long, two minutes. <laughs> should give like two minutes then. You know, 10 minutes should be like you call us to a shiur, 10 minutes. You know, uh, I, I've, I've gone in for it myself, to be honest. It's a group of younger guys. They don't come to shiurim. We're down to three minutes of Torah. Literally, I send them a WhatsApp every Friday before Shabbos, three minutes on the parsha, And my guarantee to them, which they can check, because it's obviously time, is that it's after three minutes. And knowing the, those of us who had the good fortune of learning from Rebbeim, both Baha'i uh, Alma and those who have left the world, thinking again of Lichtenstein, abhorred reductionism, abhorred the idea of conflation of complex ideas and intricacies 
into smaller and smaller packets. And yet, even the VBM, even Yu Torah, for all of its greatness, is also indulgent of exactly that within the realm of Arsham. By the by, the, the title, Is the World Too Much With Us?, is a question. No one should question whether we should have debates today. Is the internet a good thing or a bad thing? Do we like it or we not? It's here, and it's a reality. And it's a reality of how people learn. The question of extent and how we invite it into the tent is, of course, apt. The first Yisrael was uh, extolling the virtue of Gutenberg for what he did. But uh, we all know that uh, many things have been printed that don't qualify, certainly not as high literature, not in level of ideas, and have been uh, more than corrosive and threatening and, and just terrible. There's no other word for them. So I'm curious. Do you see, over a period of time, among your Talmudim, who you interact with in person, a lessening of their, call it, zitzfleisch, ability to focus? Is there a push or a trend that we've somehow indulged that we need to fight against, quote-unquote? Is that a tie we really can't uh, counter uh, in terms of the, uh, the, the need for increasingly bite-sized bits of information instead of, uh, instead of larger uh, packets that have more intricate ideas within them? So as we welcome with Tara again. With that, it's just say hello. He was here the whole time virtually, by the way. He's got your purse. Here, so exactly. Yeah, it was, it was like spoke from the Tara. But this is a new question. Small advice. Do you feel like the tongue is different from when you start? The same? I think we struggle on a constant basis as to whether to create a, a cell, free, cell phone free environment that based matters. The advantages are obviously focus and, and uh, disconnectedness. In fact, um, there's a boy in yeshiva right now. He's his third year in yeshiva. He's here next year. And he's finishing his third year. And he decided he worked to go to the mayor for the summer. So he came over and asked me whether he should attend the message or whatnot. I positioned through it. And, but he actually wanted a conversation. He seemed like he wanted to actually parse the issue. I said, well, okay, tell me what you find attractive about going to the mayor. I wasn't so thrilled about the share per se or Chabrusas. He just felt that he wanted to immerse himself in an, in an environment of disconnectedness, of complete immersion and of lack of it. I don't know if there are our cell phones in the mirror, but certainly identified with his desire not to be distracted and not to be fractured. Um, certainly, Dominic is an area, most of this focus is on Dominic Tarp, but Dominic is an area in which cell phone access is really toxic. As disciplined as you may or may not think you are dominating from a cell phone, as much as you may feel <coughs> that the format is or isn't referential, but it's almost impossible. Like Epitropus, uh, in this case, Larius, but for a fractured, fractured interest, I think that's something we should really try to ban as much as possible because it's just such an access point. And it's ACSR. And based on at this point, we still have cell phone access because, in the Grish based matters because a lot of the robotic. Employ the myself included WhatsApp for continuing Mark McCombs and pictures of certain starim and, and certain creating a fraternal fraternity of a, of a share rap and just a disconnected lecture and preparation. This thing still serves a purpose. But again, I apologize. This is a good chance for me to apologize for coming in late. My flight was delayed and finding traffic to midtown. That's something that takes a little bit longer than five minutes. We've <laughs> 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 seen the polarities of our modern era: the five minutes hour and the forty-five minute the one mile travel through midtown. <laughs> but um, in terms of the, the brevity of Torah, the, the, the flip side is that many people have access to Torah in ways that they haven't before. So by shrinking, and in some cases, to simplify, but by creating different... Uh, I'm not sure that they're mutually exclusive. I think that we have to 
create tendencies towards sophistication and towards subtlety and length. And I think that the rigorous environment of the base matter should encourage and produce thought and, and as you said, extended, concentrated development. But I do think that there are people in today's world who have access, to, and it's always that that bar that is constantly moves. That went in, in many of us remember the yeshiva in the 80s. It was only I mean, we we lived through the 80s this, this uh, last week because of Zachariah Bell and Zachariah Levracha. We're thinking a lot about what yeshiva was like then, and in those days there really wasn't a machina program. And I would say close to 40 percent of the Hesder boys just simply didn't belong in Hesder, and this is a unique yeshiva in Haaretzion. So the Mechina program emerged and it lowered the bar and it created more compatible frameworks for people and it was suitable, but it lowered admission. So ever and Ravami tell think to fuel the, the concept of the Mechina. So it's always trying to create packaging for Torah to render it relevant and to grant access to people who haven't, I think, I don't want to always say this in any way that sounds constitutional disrespectful. I think a lot of the access to women, who, you know, there's some women today who have access to learning the classic academic frameworks, yeshivas and seminaries and mikdalos, but the many women who don't have that education and don't have the tools, or for that matter, the, the availability to, to access Torah and institutional frameworks, to be able to access it online and, and on the fly and on the go. So I think that the, the nature of Torah is that it's one of the reasons it's compared to water is that it becomes an achal. So because all we're aware of both the value of Tibin Tibin and, and the value of Anachal and the value of something that's overwhelmingly powerful in that. I don't, I don't think that we should in any way um, exclude any avenue of Torah. Well, the other avenue is to be careful that those who have access to more rigorous and extensive... Um, I remember just the stories that in the summer of Lachensin would... Of course, as you know, Lachensin would speak Friday evenings and he would average about an hour, an hour, 20 minutes for a sikha. And my wife would wait for Kiddush, we'd make Kiddush during the summer at 10.30 at night sometimes. So my wife would routinely ask me, what did Aaron speak about tonight? I said, he said that Moshe was a good person. He <laughs> 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 said, it took him an hour and a half. I think everyone in this room really was enriched by Aaron's propensity for subtlety, sophistication, deep dives into very complex issues. I feel like he took a diamond, put it on an axis, and... And, and twirl the diamond one degree at a time, and each time you appreciate a different view and a different coloration. So, I think that this yeshiva should stand for that, but not in a way that is either exclusive intellectually or constitutional morally condescending, as if lesser forms of Torah are not worthwhile. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so I think there has been a lot uh, written, and uh, some of it quite serious about the. Uh, physiological, neurological uh, impact of um, uh, you know, modern technology, digital technology, the internet, etc. Um, I have actually in my hands a book, which I'm not going to read from, so you don't have to worry, but uh, this is one of the early, I guess, uh, prophets um, against um, studying um, you know, on screens, or reading on screens, a fellow named Sven Burkertz, um, he uh, wrote very extensively, did a lot, he was a literary critic, but he wrote a lot about um, analyzing the difference between uh, reading books uh, and reading from computer screens. And I think he wrote uh, very, even now, reading it to 20 years later, very persuasively about you know the um, tactile uh, impact of holding a book, um, the question of time, as opposed to you know the psychological 
uh, impact of knowing that these bits you know, are about to disappear in front of you. Um, and I think that studies subsequently, again, neurological studies, physiological studies, have demonstrated that there is some impact, there's no question. Uh, as I said before, uh, requires much more discussion, but I think um, from a uh, religious and spiritual point of view, um, the impact of the digital revolution is something which needs to be analyzed in terms of how manageable or overwhelming um, data is and the world is. Uh, I think the paradox of the world shrinking on the one hand and being more accessible, but the capacity, I guess, to navigate it on your own terms being something that people feel more impotent about, uh, less uh, capable of, you know, without tools. So I think there is a lot to say about um, many of these issues. At the same time, I have to um, add that I think that the um, elementary schools and high schools um, have uh, zeroed in on this question of um, shorter time span, shorter time, shorter attention spans, uh, and I think that they have conceded much too quickly. Um, I think there's an element of self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, we're getting a lot of complaints uh, in the programs in, in Eretz Yisrael that the high school students who are coming can't read. Again, that they have all these um, you know, limitations and deficiencies. And therefore, it takes the uh, yeshivot, I guess you could speak this more, um, the yeshivot much longer to, to be able to have the impact on them. And again, uh, you know, it also uh, circumscribes um, that, that effect and ability. Uh, I have to say that my own experience, this is how you began the question, I have, uh, I think my own experience demonstrates that this all does not have to be so. Uh, I found that uh, my own Talmudim, some of whom are in the room, but I'll say it anyway, are uh, totally equal to the task, both the ones who you know, began with me uh, from the beginning, from every decade, uh, I have to say that I haven't really changed my style of um, uh, giving sheer, not the length of it, not the demands that I make. And um, I had excellent Baruch Hashem. I've been Zoha to have amazing Talmidim from the very first year uh, and continuing, and I still have amazing Talmidim uh, now. Uh, to me, that demonstrates that with all of these uh, psychological and physiological and neurological challenges, when people are inspired, when they are um, sufficiently motivated um, they're able to, um, you know, to, to rise to the to the challenge. And I say I haven't uh, pulled back Kiyuzeh, and I don't think that we should. Um, again, five minute halacha, ten minute halacha. Again, I don't dismiss it for for the people who benefit from it. Um, but the idea that we would be scaling back our aspirations and ambitions for our own talmidim, especially in the years, the formative years, where they develop their you know, uh, affinity for learning and when it defines who they are and also sets a tone for the kind of learning that they will do the rest of their lives, I think is a, uh, is a terrible mistake. Um, I'm very opposed to uh, even alumni, even those who are not in the, uh, both who are in education and not in education, you know, kind of going on maintenance of learning, dafyomi um, or, or something uh, similar with uh, limited expectations. Again, one of the you know, tremendous gifts that I received from my Rebbeim, um, the Rav Zatzal and Rav Lechensin Zatzal, Rav Amital Zatzal, was uh, to be ambitious for our Talmidim. And I, my career in Chinuch has convinced me that it can be done. It is done all the time. 
and that it's a um, self-fulfilling disaster that we um, are buying into. Not that there are challenges and issues, because I think that there are, but I believe that there is a way to compensate for them and a certain way, a way to overcome them. And I think it's uh, critical that we be resolved to do so. Um, I think, again, as I mentioned before, that uh, some of some of the damage is done, but I think there's a lot that we can do. I think that uh, for everyone of, of Rosenzweig's Talmidim who are ready to put in the time, I think that the bug has caught many students who do want things in a much more compact way. Um, and I think that Rav Rosenzweig is saying that we can push them. It's not something that can't be overcome. Uh, but I think that the challenge is great because many, many Talmidim, especially Talmidim who have perhaps less uh, ability or interest than those who would go to Rabbi Rosenzweig are pushing. And it's a real challenge of sort of finding this balance between understanding that a two-hour shear, I mean, uh, I, you know, I remember certainly uh, being in Rabbi Rosenzweig's shear um, <coughs> At about two hours, certainly remember uh, Sheer Klali from Vluchenstein at, you know, can be three and a half hours. I won't say that I always stayed awake uh, at, at, for three and a half hours, but that concept today would be rather challenging and difficult to the, the fellas. So, you know, how do you sort of, how do you sort of continue to push people out of their comfort zone while understanding that the two-hour Sheer is going to be difficult uh, for many of the fellows? I think that uh, inst- that educational institutions need to work together for a commitment to continue to push the students out of their comfort zone and to continue with that. It is very easy, certainly we've seen this amongst yeshivas and Eretz Yisrael, sort of the dumbing down effect of what's expected from the Talmidim with an eye towards recruitment. That that's what's going to bring the students, that if you continue to push the students very hard, they're not going to come. If you continue to have them break their teeth and sit in a long shear and stuff, they're not going to come. There has to be a little bit of locking arms. There has to be a certain amount of communication between the educational institutions saying, we all need to do this. We all need, at each student's level, to be pushing them out of their comfort zone of what they want. There's no question that the attention span has dropped precipitously. It's not only, by the way, attention span. It's also how long, I guess it's, it's an aspect of attention span, how long I have till you catch me. I, I do the public speaking training with the Smicha fellows. How long does one have to really catch the audience? Most people who are watching things on social media are used to watching things of 60 seconds or less. 60 seconds or less, that's what we're being trained to get a pop from, to get, a, to, to, to get something out of. That's, that's never going to be an amount of time that's going to allow for serious Torah development. At the same time, at the same time, a different audience, as Rosenzweig saying, can benefit tremendously from these 10-minute and 5-minute things. There's no doubt that the ability to study something on the way from X to Y... I remember a conversation that I had heard that they had with Nirvad uh, Yosef, with, um, talking about how critical it is to be learning on the bus how critical it is to take the famous line of the Chassam Sofer that he became a Talmud Chacham in five minutes. Five minutes here, five minutes there, and I always say to rabbis when I discuss time management that there is an enormous, enormous amount of dead time during the day. You should always have something with you to learn, to pick up, to do, 
There's always time to do that. So in that sense, the 10 minutes is a wonderful thing. By the way, it also forces the presenter to figure out how to present something in 10 minutes, which is very difficult. We always have in our speech classes a three-minute presentation. Three minutes is much harder than a seven-minute presentation. It takes a lot more time to prepare a three-minute presentation than a seven- or ten-minute presentation. So there is something to be said for that as what it is, as a, as a filler. As a filler, we should fill every moment of ours with Torah, and we should try to find ways to get more out of less. But that can never substitute for truly going into the Amkos Torah, truly spending time uh, really understanding and, 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 and fighting. That's part of what it is, the struggle to learn Torah, is to fight the desire to go off and to do something else and to stay put and to stay focused on the Sefer that I'm learning. So those are two totally different things. One we need to fight and one we need to embrace and to enlarge. I'm going to open it for questions in half a minute. I'll just add that much of what Rabbi Rodensoyer and have discussed, the boys actually find it very refreshing to be pushed. They find that change of pace very empowering and being pushed out of their comfort zone very challenging. And at least the last couple of years in Yeshiva, I think we've been successful in creating an ethos of struggle, of long shiurim, of even sure that border beyond two hours. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't think we should be pessimistic as if we're fighting an uphill battle against the resistance and reluctance and they don't have the attention span. Certain types of students really find it refreshing and they also find that you're respecting their intelligence if you're pushing them towards greater um, um, greater heights and greater um, accomplishments. So I think it's an empowering statement as well, it's not just an accommodation. Somewhat of a personal question for each of you if you can uh, respond. Do you ever meet a digital Talmud? Have you ever been somewhere and someone came over to you and said, Shalom Aleichem, Rabbi Amori, I have been listening to your shiurim diligently for X number of years. Did that have an impact on you? Do you feel, well, obviously, I put the shiurim out there. It's wonderful. Was that a refreshing encounter? Was this a person who was uh, therefore initiating a relationship ongoing? Or did you feel ambivalent about it, uh, owing to sort of having produced something that Ongoing. I'm not talking about a written piece, but an ongoing daily shear or whatnot that someone was following you for a period of time. Following is the wrong word. I'm sorry. That's using you know, some of the jargon from social media. Um, but actually, your digital talent, I would say, is that is that something that's happened to you? And what, what was that experience like? It happens all the time. Um, <laughs> um, sometimes in the most unlikely ways. Um, there are people who you just meet randomly who you don't know at all. You meet them in an airport or in other unlikely uh, places um, who come over to you and tell you that they heard a particular shit, but especially people even who follow um, uh, on a regular basis. They could be following something, you know, a shit that you gave uh, 15 years ago. Um, somebody, again, it's happened more than once, comes to me and says, uh, you know, that third uh, point that you made in the, in the fourth, uh, you know, Rambam, you know, and uh, I said that was probably at share, it was about 15 years ago. But he wants me to remember the order you know, of the presentation. But um, it happens all the time. Uh, I have actually a few people who listen on a regular basis um, who I've gotten to know, actually, um, over the years, who live in different cities and who follow uh, the Shira every single day. One of them actually mailed us a uh, Shitas Kamai because <laughs> he heard online that we couldn't locate one. So that was the <laughs> of the Shira. Um, some of those people I've come to know, and subsequently, when actually one of them lives in Chicago, this one lives in Chicago, actually, uh, as it happens. 
and um, I think it's a very wonderful. Um, I think it's a wonderful thing, and it's a, an excellent example of the opportunities uh, of the digital age. I should say at the same time that um, I think both for me and for them, having m- meeting at some point is very important and is transformative. Um, you know, inecha ro'os es morecha. You know, is uh, is is important. Uh, people need to know when you're. You know who you are, what your body language is. They don't see the video, but you know what your when you're you know being humorous and when you're being serious. Um, they need to understand you in context, and this, of course, is the danger. In other words, you have a, um, a, a you know you have an audience out there who you're not seeing, uh, who have different sensitivities in theory, uh, different backgrounds. Uh, the connotation of what you're saying can be very different. Um, it can be a very misleading and uh, sometimes can be very destructive. You have to be very careful knowing that your shiurim are being um, recorded, um, knowing that there is that additional audience. And at the same time, it's very challenging you know, not to ignore the audience that is in front of you because that's the, uh, the first line in the concentric circles. You or your tamidim who are sitting there. Um, and you, know, you have to try to balance that to be responsible and to be aware at the same time and also... Um, to be catering and serving um, the Talmudim in front of you, but there, just as there cannot be a, a you know Talmud Rebbe relationship, you know only digitally, you know, and, and uh, through video or or audio, um, the same thing is true about the Rebbe Talmud relationship. And um, as wonderful as it is, I find that you know when the people stay in touch and they contact you and you finally get to meet them and know them, that the uh, impact is uh, geometrically. Um, improved. Um, so I, I think it's this is a growing phenomenon. Mostly it's very constructive, but like personal psak, um, I think that we also need to be aware, you know, that uh, there are challenges um, associated with it, dangers even if we're irresponsible or not aware. Um, but mostly, I think it's very beneficial. I think that uh, very often you have someone come over to you, you look on, on Torah and you see that the shear that you gave to four people was heard by 7,000 people or something like that. It really is, it, it, it's something that's very hard for us to fathom um, that most of our Talmidim might be listening online. Not just listening online, but it's a very different kind of scenario. They aren't a regular Talmidim. There's someone who downloaded the shear and picked it up. And that, that really has to change the way we're presenting. Of course, as Rosenzweig saying, the first of the circles, the most, the innermost of the circles are the people you're facing. And especially when you're a Rebbe, I don't teach a regular shear, the, the amount of importance that's given to the daily shear and to the relationship with Talmidim. I'm usually giving a shear as a guest lecturer somewhere. And I have to remember that most of the people that I'm speaking to are not there and they're going to be hearing it in a different context, and that makes me have to be very, very careful about what I say. Very, very careful about what I say. Sometimes you give a shear, someone misunderstands something, they, they come up right after the shear, and you'll actually get back on the microphone, and you'll say, I don't want you to misunderstand this. Can't do that with the tape. The tapes are the tape, whatever, the recording. I still call it tape. The recording is, a, is, is already off. But... It is impossible to understand how far this goes. I just have to tell you one story. We had a launch for the app, for the Torah app. One of the speakers was uh, Rabbi Ari Leibowitz, who gives the 10-minute 
halacha. So he's facing the audience. Everyone, 500 people are facing the panel. He's facing the audience. And in the back row are two fellows who looked actually Hasidic. Not neo-Hasidic. Actually Hasidic. You can still tell the difference. And he couldn't figure out what they were doing there. They were uncomfortable to be there, but they, they felt obviously a need to come. So at the, end of the sh- at the end of the panel discussion, they came up and talked to Rabbi Leibowitz. They told them that they're from, I forgot where, I think New Square, and that they listen to his 10-minute halacha religiously in the car. Religiously in the car. And in fact, the kids don't really speak English well. So the father plays it on half speed and explains to them the English so that they can understand what an organized halacha shir would sound like. And they said, we had to come to meet you. You just cannot fathom how far things go in this sense. And again, it's part of the dangers and part of the challenge, but part of the opportunity to reach people from people who have no connection to Judaism to people who seemingly have other ways and places to learn galore. It's incredible how many people are listening, and it is fascinating to meet them and to hear from them and to get emails from them, etc. Et I'll just add or compliment what Rabbi Petter just mentioned. First of all, I just returned from Las Vegas, and the reason I spent Shabbos in Las Vegas was not the blackjack tables, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> I would be very good at that, but there were some people who have listened to the Shior uh, fairly... Uh, fairly routinely, and they wanted to actually hear this year in person, so I went there for Shabbos. And I, I think what you just said, Rabbi Petter, resonates very deeply with me, that I think the internet is ideologically colorblind, and some of the cellularization of the Torah world that predated the internet has started to mold, has started to melt away. And it's several, several instances, in fact, some of them very close with, in the spirit of what you described, I met up with him, and now I stay with him when I'm in America, and his whole family have been more or less looked to me as a rabbinic influence in their life. And he just happened to come across a share of mine because he was intrigued that there was a rabbi in Hawaii Torah that didn't have a beard. And he had never heard a share from someone without a beard. So it was, just, uh, it was a field trip for him just to hear that non-bearded rabbis could actually speak. And he got hooked. And he, they listened to the share literally every morning at the breakfast table, whatever share I give it, and every Shabbos at the table. So I think there's a chance to reach beyond ideological constraints, and to a degree, I think they're uh, I'm not engaged. If I try to answer all my emails and my messages, I think there's some conservative individuals, or reform rabbis, I don't know the level of their orthodoxy, but I know that professionally they're involved in some of those institutions, and I think it's nice for them to be exposed to engaged, sophisticated, but traditional and committed to our ideas. Um, the only thing I'll add is I think there's a component to the Israel bridging, that there's certain ideas that are very popular in Eretz Yisrael now that haven't necessarily wafted their way fully back to the United States, whether it's Tanakh, whether it's some other ideas. Obviously, there are events in Eretz Yisrael that occur that have deep religious meaning and, and are deeply connected to who we are as over the Hashem. And I think some of us in Eretz Yisrael see the internet and see the, 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 um, the information superhighway as an opportunity to connect those who aren't living these experiences as deeply and, and don't have that front row seat. You know, that during the summer of 2014, I was living as not Torah per se, but I think it touched who we were from a Torah perspective, the summer of the kidnapped children and what that meant and how we processed that and what that spoke, how it challenged everyone. And I tried to be as actively engaged in that process. So it's, I think it does expand ideologically and it does bridge geographically. 
And I think it's a healthy entire world in which uh, we, we don't necessarily have to render these rapid judgments based on what people are wearing on their heads or which issues they're associated with. We're able to treat our substantively and without any pre prejudicial preconceptions. I want to thank each of our uh, three panelists this afternoon for joining us very, very much. And uh, we're going to go to the next session, which is downstairs, one floor. Uh, if you're listening to this online because the session is recorded, <laughs> so you're missing a great advantage, which is to be able to see the uh, cross-section of people who have joined us today in honor of Shabbat Haaretz Jubilee celebration, and of course, be able to interact with uh, these distinguished panelists now after the panel to have informal conversations with them if you needed to learn from them. Thank you again. Thank you, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.